Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Fedrick, a host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Eleni Kafala about her new book, The Conquered, Byzantium in America on the Cusp of Modernity. Hello, and welcome to the channel, Eleni. Um, Hello, Ethan. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, It's great to have this conversation with you uh, today. I am very excited to talk to you about this book as a person who likes to study Mexico in a a global context. I've never quite seen the uh, Nahuatl people put in a global context. So I'm very excited to uh, talk to you through this book and some of the comparisons and connections you've made uh, between the Mexica and uh, and the Byzantines in the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. I look forward to that. So to dive right in, your first chapter is um, called Serendipities, which I enjoy very much as a title name, and it outlines many of the parallel experiences and prophecies of the two cities you focus on in this text, uh, Tenochtitlan and uh, Constantinople. Now, many of the serendipities that you note here are dated after conquest, and you sort of question their mythologizing a little bit. Tell us a little bit about some of these serendipitous similarities between these two cities, Tenochtitlan and Constantinople. Right. Um, Well, I should first probably mention that the book was written during a fellowship at the Barton Oaks um, uh, in Washington, D.C., where um, uh, Byzantine and pre-Columbian studies come together. I mean, to my knowledge, uh, this is the the, the only um, international research uh, institute that uh, brings these two um, uh, sort of um, distinct fields uh, of studies um, together. So the, the encounter of Byzantium and America, uh, the Barton Oaks, um, uh, which was a result of, uh, of its founders, uh, the Blisses, interest in, in Byzantine and pre-Columbian art, uh, in itself, in a way, is a serendipity, right? So uh, as you've just mentioned, Ethan, the, the opening chapter uh, of the Conquered um, uh, is called Serendipities, right? Because it brings uh, to the fore a number of, of what I call bemusing uh, serendipities that connect uh, Byzantium and America beyond, obviously, their, their fortuitous um, encounter at uh, the Barton Oaks. Uh, one of the most striking serendipities, uh, in my opinion, is the year 1492. Uh, as we know, that was uh, when obviously Columbus reached uh, um, what he thought to be the West Indies. Um, the, the Byzantines, um, or, or Romei actually, as they called themselves, um, they also called their empire uh, Eastern Roman Empire, not, not Byzantium. The, the term Byzantine Empire um, is a later term uh, from the 16th century. So the Byzantines believed that the year 1492 would signal the end of the world. Uh, the, the term uh, in Greek is uh, syndelia, which literally means uh, end of the world. Um, and that was because in the Orthodox Christian calendar, the year 1492 uh, corresponded to the year 7000 since creation. So, so the, the Byzantines obviously were slightly off in the timing of the, of the fall of Constantinople, um, which um, would occur almost 40 years earlier. But uh, they they were nevertheless um, very accurate. I mean, they anticipated with with, with uncanny accuracy uh, the end of the world as they knew it. Um, now, Tuesday um, is another serendipity. Um, both cities fell on a Tuesday. Uh, in the case of Constantinople, that was on the 29th of May. Uh, and, and in the case of Tenochtitlan, um, on the 13th of August, other serendipities um, involve uh, ominous signs forecasting the fall of the two empires. Uh, fire, for instance, um, reportedly uh, affected the the Church of Hagia Sophia, or the, the Church of, of Holy Wisdom in Constantinople, um, and also the, the house of Huitzilopochtli, uh, um, the Mexica's supreme deity um, in, in Tenochtitlan. Um, both, sit, both, the, both, both these sides, sorry, um, uh, that is the Hagia Sophia and, and the house of Huitzilopochtli, uh, were actually metonymies uh, of the imperial cities themselves. Hagia uh, Sophia was built um, in the 6th century on the orders of uh, Emperor Justinian I, uh, and it was a symbol of Constantinople. Uh, by the same token, Huitzilopochtli uh, was associated with, with the myth of, of the foundation of Tenochtitlan. Um, 
Now, to these serendipities, we could also add the motif of the of the eagle and snake, um, which is present in the foundational mythos of, of both cities. Um, the motif um, also appears, among other places, uh, on the famous mosaic of the Great Palace in Constantinople, dating from the, the 6th century. Uh, it also um, appears in the Codex Ran from the uh, 16th century. Now, the, the eschatological narrative of the Byzantines obviously uh, uh, predated the fall of, of Constantinople. Uh, but the omens, as you mentioned, um, involving the sacred places, uh, were reported um, in accounts following the events, uh, that is, after the fact, um, on both occasions. Like in the case of Constantinople, um, we have this this, in, uh, this piece of information appears in, in Nestor Iskander's uh, Tale of Constantinople, a text of the uh, late 15th, early 16th century, in the case of Tenochtitlan, um, uh, this um, omen is, is, is reported in the Florentine Codex that, as we know, um, was composed in the second part of the of the 16th century. Um, so, in, in, in fact, the omens the, in, uh, um, referring to the fall of the Mexica were a colonial device. Uh, they were constructed uh, after the events, uh, having in mind similar omens uh, from the so-called Old World, and they were also a strategy, really, uh, that helped um, the Mexica cope with uh, with change. This is really a great beginning to the ways that you connect these two cities. As as a reader who's much more familiar with Mexican history than uh, than anything with the Byzantine or Eastern Roman, I, I gasped when I saw the mosaic of the snake and eagle doing mm-hmm. battle on the hills of Constantinople. You continue this sort of dialogue in your next chapter, Byzantium, America, and the Modern in which you talk about the thematic role that connected these two these two cities to a fundamental sense, a burgeoning sense of European modernity. So can you tell us how and in what sense these two cities came to play that role as a sort of alternative or, or precursor to European modernity? Of course. Uh, this chapter really historicizes a comparative approach of, of Byzantium in America on the cusp of modernity, hmm? as the, the, the title of the book goes. Uh, obviously, one could ask, uh, what is there to compare, really, between Constantinople and Tenochtitlan um, to geographically and, and, and culturally um, uh, distant and distinct no? uh, imperial cities uh, beyond uh, uh, some puzzling serendipities and beyond the fact that, uh, obviously, historically, uh, their conquests occurred um, close to each other. Obviously, we will have the... the, the we think of the grand scale of history, right? So in this chapter, I argue that Byzantium in America, uh, which obviously for matters of length and balance um, um, is here metonymically represented by Tenochtitlan um, and the Mexica uh, Empire more generally. So uh, both uh, American Byzantium uh, are constitutive of, of European modernity. This means that not only did they uh, play... Um, a crucial and important role in the self-imagining of modernity, uh, but they also made uh, the ex- actualization uh, of modernity possible. Uh, I mean, both materially and, and epistemically. Uh, well, at, at this point, uh, should probably point out that um, although the term modernity traditionally refers to uh, the Enlightenment. Um, scholars like Walter Mignolo, uh, Enrique Dussel, um, Aníbal Quijano, um, among many others, actually, uh, refer to the conquest uh, of America in the late 15th and during the 16th century um, as first or early modernity. Um, and uh, they reserve the term second modernity for the Enlightenment, uh, the, the, the French and industrial revolutions, uh, also in reference to the second wave of, of European colonialism in the 19th uh, and 20th century. So uh, in this chapter, uh, I borrow the phrase, um, a, a phrase by Dussel, uh, the phrase, uh, the rational myth of modernity, um, um, which of course refers to modernity's narrative of superiority. Um, what does this mean? Obviously, um, it, it, it refers to the fact that the moderns saw what was external in space, and what was external in time uh, as dark and regressive. Um, I, I call the first process exogenous um, inferiorization, a term that I use 
to refer to modernity's uh, defining of, of non-European cultures in this case as inferior. Um, th- this view is reflected, of course, um, uh, among others, in, in Columbus's diaries, um, in Hernán Cortés's letters to, to the emperor, to, to Emperor Charles uh, V. Um, it is also reflected in chronicles uh, of, of the conquest, um, um, written by conquistadors la, like uh, Bernal Díaz del Castillo and, and his true uh, history of the, of the conquest of New Spain. And, of course, this view uh, was uh, later on reflected in the writings of um, uh, of the philosophers of the Enlightenment, like like Voltaire, uh, Buffon, uh, and others, who who actually, with few exceptions, um, they, they saw the indigenous um, peoples uh, as innocent and primitive, primitive, um, or savage and, and, and barbarous. Um, of course, we know that along with this notion of of, of the savage, we have had that of the um, uh, the noble savage, the the bon sauvage. Uh, which we find um, in the works of Rabelais, Rousseau, and others. Um, In in any case, European modernity uh, became the standard by which uh, contemporary, contemporaneous cultures across the globe were judged uh, and and rhetorically constructed as as inferior. Um, So similarly, I use the term endogenous inferiorization uh, to refer to the defining of Europe's own past now as, as inferior. Uh, we know, for instance, that the Renaissance uh, denounced um, uh, the immediate past, no? uh, later called the Middle Ages, uh, as dark and, and retrograde. Um, and despite the fact that later on the Western Middle Ages um, were, were, were reinstated, were gradually reinstated, um, thanks to the historical revisionism of the Enlightenment, uh, but also Romanticism's uh, idealization of medieval culture, uh, actually, the narrative of Byzantium as dark and regressive um, persisted uh, in the works of, uh, of uh, philosophers like uh, Voltaire, uh, Montesquieu, even Gibbon, obviously, as we know, um, and many others. Um, and, and I argue that in some way it is, it is still reflected today uh, in everything of contemporary pejorative uses of the adjective Byzantine um, in all major um, European languages. So um, so I argue that America exemplifies what we could call the rational myth of modernity abroad, um, while Byzantium exemplifies the rational myth of modernity at home. Um, we can think of the rhetorical uh, construction, the, 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 uh, the rhetorical construction of the indigenous peoples as primitive and savage, uh, and of the Middle Ages as dark and, and regressive, um, really as two tributaries of, of the same river. Um, at the same time, both Byzantium and America are constitutive uh, of modernity um, as they played a crucial role um, in its uh, self-imagining. Um, and as I've already obviously said, um, they were um, instrumental in, in, in the rise uh, and in the consolidation of the modern, both um, materially and epistemically. I think this is a chapter that really... Uh, shows the value of the of the book itself to readers from both uh, fields of scholarship. Because as a, as a Latin Americanist, I was sort of familiar with the way that the discovery of the Americas was constitutive for European senses of modernity, but I was much less familiar with this Byzantine dimension of it. And I'm sure uh, it's probably common on the opposite too, unless um, Byzantine scholars are much more globally aware mm-hmm. than than us Latin Americanists are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I found this chapter to be very rich, and, I, and your metaphor of two tributaries leading into the same river, uh, a particularly helpful analytic to understand uh, this development of consciousness that's happening in this 15th and 16th century time period. Mm-hmm. I'm, glad, I'm glad that you, um, you found that, that, that particular uh, chapter interesting, and, and obviously it, it helps contextualize uh, whatever follows in the book. So yeah. So let's move to what follows in the book. In your next chapter, chapter three, you introduce the structures and origins of the poems that the the text that your book itself is about, that you're studying these moments through these poems. And it outlines the approach that you take to them, uh, which is to study them as pieces of collective trauma, or in one case, uh, an attempt at collective trauma. Could you tell us a little bit about the poems themselves and then how the category of collective trauma helps us understand them? Sure. Uh, yeah, 
let me first say that this chapter places the three poems um, within their cultural and aesthetic context. Um, and at the same time, it sets the, the theoretical background of the study. Um, so here the reader can find information on the long tradition of learned um, and folk laments um, for cities um, uh, and for the dead, um, as well as on, on ritual practices. Um, and this, obviously, this information helps um, contextualize uh, the analysis of the Greek poem uh, later on. Um, so the anonymous author of, of the Greek uh, poem, um, uh, whose title is um, uh, Anakalimatis Constantinopolis, uh, lament for Constantinople. Uh, the, the anonymous poet, uh, who was most likely a member of the upper class, by the way, um, drew on the tradition of Thrini. Hmm? Um, Thrini uh, means uh, learned, refers to, it's a term uh, refer, uh, that refers to learned laments. So the, the, the poet uh, drew on the tradition of Thrini, um, but also on the tradition of monodies, um, which were prose laments. Uh, as well as uh, on the tradition of, of Miroloya, um, a term referring to folk laments for the dead. Um, and at the same time, the, the poet drew on the historical events themselves. So the poem uh, is also written in, in, in the koine, uh, in other words, in the standard Greek of the time, um, but it also incorporates some idiomatic elements, which, which most likely point to the island of Cyprus, uh, which was then under um, Frankish rule um, until uh, uh, the year 1489. Uh, now, similarly, the chapter discusses the pre-Columbian traditions um, of, um, of the Inknokwikatl, that is, uh, Song of Sorrow, and Yaogwikatl, uh, Song of War, uh, as well as um, uh, the tradition of, of the Cantares Mexicanos or, or Mexica songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I should probably say that the Cantares Mexicanos is a corpus of, of 91 songs, which, although they were largely composed after 1521, after the fall of, the fall of Tenochtitlan Tlatelolco, um, they drew closely on the pre-conquest uh, tradition of the Cantares. Um, uh, and we know that the Cantares in general, not, I'm not referring to the Cantares Mexicanos, um, uh, the corpus in particular, but the Cantares in, in, in general, we know that they were performed, um, they were accompanied by flutes and drums, um, the, the so-called Wewet and, and Teponastli, which, which, which were um, percussion instruments, and, and they were also often accompanied by, uh, by dance. So uh, the songs, um, in, in Nahuatl the word is Quicatl, uh, uh, the, the songs would have been memorized by the Mexica elite uh, at the Calmecac, um, that is, the, the public school um, that they attended before um, uh, the conquest. And, and, and the Cantares in the Cantares Mexicanos manuscript uh, could have been composed by those people um, who had attended the Calmecac uh, prior to 1521, although... Um, I believe that they were actually composed by um, uh, by uh, children of the Nawa nobility who were acquainted with, with the tradition of the Cantares uh, through through collecting and recording um, um, them in the second half of the of the 16th century. Now, as you've mentioned, Ethan, uh, the chapter also provides information on the theoretical approach, right? Uh, and the theoretical approach draws on recent theories of, of collective memory and, and, and cultural trauma. Now, uh, according to these theories, um, a catastrophic event, a painful event, let's say, um, no matter how traumatic uh, it may be for those who actually experience it, um, it does not automatically qualify as, as cultural um, or collective trauma. So um, I'll give you some examples. Scholars, uh, scholars like Jeffrey Alexander, for instance, uh, argue that societies can suffer significant um, disruptions um, that they uh, don't ultimately uh, consider traumatic. So um, cultural trauma is not the result of a pain a group may experience. In other words, um, the events are, are not inherently traumatic. Um, trauma uh, is, is, is actually 
socially constructed. Uh, the, the gap and, and the gap between um, uh, the, the the traumatic event or events and cultural trauma is bridged through what um, Alexander and others call um, uh, the trauma process. So the trauma process is um, uh, is carried out uh, by career groups um, who, who have access to some kind of institutional power, and this is quite important. Um, uh, among um, uh, those career groups, we, we we can find politicians and political leaders in general, uh, poets, uh, writers, artists, um, intellectuals more generally, um, who who create, who who forge um, narratives of narratives of, of collective pain. Um, now, poets, writers, and, and artists in particular are actually called symbol creators. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time. Um, and I have in mind Neil Smelser, another theorist of cultural trauma. Um, uh, at the same time, once a historical memory is established as a national trauma, uh, it must be continuously nurtured as such. It, it, it has to be continuously sustained uh, as cultural trauma. Um, in fact, only in this way can um, can it continue to be considered um, um, as, as collective trauma, as cultural trauma affecting affecting the community. Um, and, and this particular point is uh, is extremely important, and, and and it does help us follow the afterlife of the texts, um, as, as as I argue later on in the book in, in the final in the final chapter. Now, the theory um, also helps us. Um, Trace common strategies hmm, that the, the the creators of the of this of these three texts uh, employ. Um, among them, um, the use of um, an affective language uh, that we find in, in all three texts. Um, uh, in that is in in in, in lament for Constantinople, that is Anakalima, but also in Ueshot Sinkayot um, and 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 uh, So all three texts um, draw on existing um, symbolic traditions um, as well as uh, on the historical events themselves. They also all present um, those events, um, the events of the conquest, um, as an open wound uh, on the body politic. Uh, they also all answer uh, what theorists of, of cultural trauma refer to as the the, the four uh, critical questions. Um, uh, uh, critical in the sense, you know, uh, critical in the process of of of, of constructing cultural trauma. Um, uh, critical for the um, 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 trauma process. So these questions have to do with the, the nature of the pain, um, the identity of the victim the identity of the perpetrator and the relation between the victim uh, and the target audience. So, so um, theories of collective memory and cultural trauma really, in this case, uh, help us throw light on, on three sorrowful poems. Actually, in the case of, of, of the Cantares Mexicanos, um, of the of Ueshot Sincayotl and Tlaxcala de Gayot, we should really be speaking of songs and not poems, but... Um, um, the theory here helps us uh, throw light on, on the text, uh, on three texts originating uh, from uh, very different traditions. I think one of the things that I found very interesting, I mean, there's many interesting points here, and the, the way that you theorize collective trauma is very instructive, particularly for Mexican history. It very much made me rethink the role, the historical memory of the Mexica play in Mexican history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the other things I enjoy about this is it, is an interesting investigation of rulership and royalty because functionally to, to make this trauma collective, they need to uh, have a suffering of a, of a single Royal figure become collective suffering. And so how do you sort of um, take the, take the emperor off the top of the hierarchy and make him one of us or make him uh, make his suffering something relatable, even if I wasn't in Tenochtitlan or, or Constantinople mm-hmm. at the time mm-hmm. of the conquest. Uh, and that, that's a very interesting discursive process, which I think you very clearly lay out here and, and would be instructive for all sorts of scholars of trauma and memory. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that because actually, if you think about it, uh, I mean, my argument is that none of the of the of the composers of these three texts uh, must have experienced the the, the, the events uh, of the conquests uh, firsthand. Um, if we're talking about a Cypriot poet, um, 
then uh, probably uh, he wouldn't have experienced those events firsthand. And and if we're talking about the second generation of of, um, of now nobility, that is, well, um, of, of children of now nobility uh, that. Um, um, were familiar with the Cantares because they collected them in the second half of the 20th century, not because they studied at the Calmecac. Uh, then, um, um, obviously, this points to the fact that um, this is not really about someone who has experienced the events. Uh, he thought that uh, they were traumatic and, and then they relate uh, them to us. But um, it has a lot to do with, uh, with rhetorical construction of, 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 um, the, of cultural trauma. And your next chapter actually gets into the rhetoric of these poems and how they they try to impart this collective trauma. Your fourth chapter, Imparting Trauma, appropriately named, begins with the Anacolema um, poem on the fall of Constantinople. So could you first talk a little bit about how this poem tries to or tried to impart a collective trauma in the Greek speaking or former Eastern Rome, uh, Roman imperial world? Mm-hmm. Sure. As you say, Ethan, the uh, chapter four is the longest in the book because, uh, precisely because it, it is dedicated to a close reading uh, of the Greek and, and Nahuatl texts. So really, this is where the, the heart of the book is, is beating, <laughs> so to speak. Um, now, part one uh, of the chapter focuses on uh, the Greek poem Anakalima. Um, I think I should I should point out at this point that the, um, we should say that the, the poem survives in, a, in an early 16th century manuscript uh, dating from 1509, uh, which is held at the National Library of France. Um, uh, it must have been written sometime between the fall of Constantinople in 1453 and 1481, uh, scholars argue, um, and it was first published um, uh, by Emile Legrand in, in 1875. Uh, the, the, the poem itself consists of 118 lines. Um, the first part is, is, is a reflexive thrinos uh, or learned lament, um, and I say reflexive because it dramatizes. Um, it dramatizes um, the ritual lamentation and public uh, commemorative activities. Um, particularly um, in, in the embedded lament uh, of the last Byzantine emperor, um, uh, Constantinos Paleologos. Uh, and the second part uh, of the poem is, is a more conventional thrinos, a more conventional lament, uh, learned lament. Uh, and here the narrator shares his dismay uh, at the fall of uh, Constantinople. Uh, so this uh, the second part consists of, of two sections, uh, a dramatic narration uh, of the events um, and an allegory. Um, which draws on, on lore um, uh, as well as on, on eschatological narratives um, in, in very interesting ways, actually. Now, um, I've said that the, uh, the anonymous poet of Anacalema, um, probably a member of the, of the upper class, um, um, well, he articulates his trauma claim by borrowing elements from the learned and popular traditions. Uh, for example, uh, the, the tradition of Thrini, uh, um, uh, but also monodies, uh, um, we remember those were uh, prose laments, uh, also the tradition of ancient drama, uh, supplications, um, folk laments, the, the mirologia I referred to earlier, um, but also funerary practices, lore, as I've just said, uh, eschatological narratives and others. Uh, at the same time, I've said that the poet draws qu- quite closely um, on, on the historical events, as they um, they were recorded in texts of the time, um, texts texts like, for instance, the histories of uh, of uh, Mikhail Kritobulos uh, or Mikhail Dukos, but also in in texts of Westerners who actually witnessed the events uh, firsthand, like uh, Ubertino Pusculo, Benvenuto Fancona, um, the Cardinal Isidore, um, and, and many others. So, in order to articulate his trauma claim. Um, the poet addresses the four fundamental questions, um, um, which, as I've said, uh, are critical to the trauma process. Um, what happened? Who suffered? Who did it? Uh, and what, uh, uh, what is the relation between um, victim and audience? Right? Um, the, the poet presents the fall of Constantinople uh, as a wound uh, that affects the Romay uh, Everywhere, uh, the term that is used in the, in, in the poem is um, uh, pandahothen, 
everywhere. Uh, so it doesn't on, it doesn't only affect those living within Byzantium, within the borders, uh, the administrative borders of Byzantium, if, uh, as it were. So among uh, those not living within Byzantium would be obviously the, the Greek-speaking Orthodox Christians uh, of places like Lusignan Cyprus, Frankish Cyprus, uh, Venetian Crete, um, and Hospital Rhodes, um, among others. Um, the author employs a series of rhetorical di- devices um, uh, in his trauma uh, claim, uh, well, trauma process. Um, devices like repetition, uh, anaphora, uh, polyptotone, asyndotone, and, and others. Um, and he also um, uh, employs um, visual, uh, oral, and, and kinesthetic uh, imagery. Um, uh, and all this together encourage, obviously, the, the emotional uh, and cognitive involvement um, of, the, of the audience. Um, Anakalima actually animalizes uh, the, the perpetrator, uh, Mehmet II, huh? Um, uh, and he does so through the, the canine um, trope. Um, Mehmed is called dog throughout the book. Um, a, a, and this trope is actually frequent uh, in learned laments uh, in Frini hmm, uh, on the fall of Constantinople. Um, at the same time, Mehmed, uh, Mehmed, is, um, Mehmed is presented as the forerunner of, of Antichrist. Uh, so it is interesting uh, to see how um, Christian eschatology, um, in this case, actually collapses into history. Um, um, the, the final line of the poem, um, uh, which goes, um, and, um, and, and angels and, and saints no longer help, um, is very interesting. Um, why? Well, because uh, in other uh, learned laments of the time, in other Thrini of the time, um, and some of them we do know that they, that, that were written by monks, um, in other Thrini of the time, um, we very often come across the narrative of theodicy. Uh, that is the, the idea that, um, that Constantinople fell because God wanted to punish its people, because God wanted to punish its emperors for their sins. Um, but I should probably mention... Uh, um, uh, here that uh, that for many Greek Orthodox um, uh, and Russians, uh, the conquest of Constantinople um, was a divine sanction, um, a divine sanction for the for, for what we could call the, the barely concealed Romans of the of the Paleologan royal family with Catholicism, um, the, the 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 Council of Ferrara, Florence, um, uh, which um, which had taken place some fifteen years earlier, was meant to unite. Um, the Western Catholic and Eastern Orthodox uh, churches, um, which were separated since um, um, what was it? since uh, 1054. So uh, the actual union was was formally celebrated in Hagia Sophia. Hmm? Um, uh, that was in December 1453, just a few months before the um, the events of the um, uh, the fall. For this reason, actually, Hagia Sophia was seen by anti-unionists um, like, for instance, the future patriarch, the first patriarch under Ottoman rule, Gennadios Holarios, um, as contaminated, as a, as a heretical place uh, that, that should be avoided at all costs. Hence, um, the narrative of a theodicy uh, appeared, no, as I've said, in, in, in several Thrini of the time, um, some of them written by, by monks. However, and this is important. In the tradition of folk poetry, of, of Greek folk poetry, this narrative is absent. So in Greek folk songs, um, common people are usually portrayed as innocent victims, um, victims of, say, uh, overwhelming disasters, right? So um, in folk songs, the responsibility lies either with the masters or with God himself. And in that case, God is identified as the perpetrator of the tragedy. So it, it is interesting to see, going back to Anakalima, how a learned lament like Anakalima, a Thrinos like Anakalima, uh, in this case, aligns itself not with learned tradition, but uh, with folk tradition, with the tradition of folk poetry. Um, so not only are the Romei uh, not responsible for the tragedy, they're also abandoned by the angels and in, saints in who no longer help, right? So in the poet's trauma claim, yes, there is um, divine abandonment, um, but there is no sense of theodicy. 
Um, so just to conclude, I should also mention that in, in the case of Anakalima, um, the use of standard Greek uh, with only some uh, idiomatic elements um, in a period when Cypriot texts actually tended to favor uh, the dialect over, over standard Greek um, may actually point, uh, in my view, to a conscious effort on the part of the poet to actually disseminate his trauma claim um, um, as widely as possible uh, within the, the, the Greek-speaking world uh, of the time. I found this, especially as a, a person who hasn't specialized in this field, I found this very complex view of the pol- political and religious scene of the Eastern Mediterranean very rich and complexly and well articulated in this first part of the chapter. As you then get into how the text of the poem tries to, uh, how the author of this poem tried to situate themselves in the, in the most strategic and advantageous way possible. You do that again in the second half of this chapter, because like you said, this chapter is is the beating heart of the book. And in the second part of this chapter, you move to the two Nahuatl language poems on the fall of Tenochtitlan Tlatelolco. And these po- the title of these poems jumped out to me because they are named after the two of the rival cities of the Mexica, uh, cities that actually allied with the Spanish conquistadors. So could you tell us a little bit about these poems and how they came to be named after these places? and why they failed in your assessment to impart a collective trauma in the same way as the uh, Anacolema. Yes. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, obviously, both Tlaxcala and, and Huesotzinco um, um, were um, among the, the historical enemies uh, of, the, of the Mexica. Um, therefore, obviously, um, um, uh, the, the, their presence in the, in the two songs um, is, is definitely deliberate. Um, well, let me first offer some contextual information here on, on the on the texts before I say a few things about their trauma claim. Um, so um, I've already mentioned that that, that both songs uh, come from uh, the Cantares Mexicanos manuscript, which is preserved uh, in alphabetized Nahuatl um, in a 16th century manuscript, um, which which is held at the at the National Library of Mexico. Um, now, most of the songs of Cantares Mexicanos uh, were collected between uh, between the 1550s and, and 1570s, perhaps with a couple of them collected a, a little bit uh, later in, in, in the following decade. Um, the songs were collected uh, from indigenous informants. Um, most of them actually were, um, as scholars argue, from, from, from the twin cities of Ireland, the island of Mexico, that is Tenochtitlan, Tlatelolco, um, and some songs uh, uh, were collected possibly from Mexico's close ally, uh, Azcapotzalco, um, on the western shore of uh, western shore of, of Lake uh, Texcoco. Now, in contrast to the the Spanish narrative of the conquest, um, the fall of the Mexica did not result uh, from the exceptionality of Cortes uh, and his men. Um, but actually from the massive rebellion uh, of indigenous city-states, the, the, the so-called Altepetl in Nahuatl. Um, so the, the, the massive rebellion, uh, indigenous rebellion against uh, a, a much-hated empire, let's say, the, the Mexica Empire. So we know, for instance, um, uh, that in the final stage of the conquest, uh, the Spaniards were less than 1%, actually, of, of, of the army of Cortes. Um, I think it's, um, I think Ross Hasek, uh, reports that th- th- there were about 900 Spaniards um, uh, as opposed to um, 200,000 indigenous warriors um, fighting against uh, the Mexica. Uh, now, now, among those trying to topple the Mexica uh, were obviously the Tlaxcalteca and Huesotzinca uh, that appear um, in none of the songs um, in, in Tlaxcaltecayotl. Um, like the author of Anacalima, I've said that the, the composers of Huesotzincayot um, and Tlaxcaltecayot, uh, uh, they borrow elements from, from, from the pre-Columbian tradition, especially the tradition of pre-Hispanic cantares, um, but they also draw on sacrificial rituals uh, at the Templo Mayor uh, in Tenochtitlan, um, and at the same time, of course, they commemorate um, the events of the, of the siege and fall of, of, of Tenochtitlan. Uh, Tlatelolco in 1521. 
Um, and again, as in the case of um, um, historical information uh, about the, the, the fall of Constantinople, in this case, again, the, the events um, were recorded in contemporary um, um, sources um, like the Florentine, Florentine Codex uh, or the, the, the Annales, the, the Tlatelolco, the, the Annals of, of, of Tlatelolco, um, both um, indigenous sources, right? So, um, so here too, history and tradition uh, become uh, really the vehicles through which um, the, the composers of the songs um, aim to, uh, to first articulate um, and then transmit and disseminate uh, the, the, the trauma of the conquest hmm, to, to the wider community. Um, now, Ueshotzinkayot um, um, is a relatively brief song. It, it only consists of, of, of ten stanzas. Um, um, here we actually find no direct reference uh, to the Ueshotzinka, apart from the title of, of the subgenre uh, to which the song belongs. Um, we know, for example, uh, from the physician um, Francisco Hernandez, who visited Mexico in the in the in the 1570s, that that this subgenre of Huesotincayot, not not the actual song we have in uh, we're talking about, but the subgenre uh, referred to war songs um, in which the Mexicas celebrated their victory over the Huesotinca. Hmm? Uh, such songs, uh, Hernandez uh, tells us. Um, were sung when when Wechotzinka captives were taken by the Mexica to be sacrificed at the Templo Mayor in Tenochtitlan. Now, uh, going back to her song, uh, Wechotzinkayot, um, here, the place of the victims, which was previously occupied by the Wechotzinka, um, is now taken by the Mexica themselves. So you see that there is an interesting slippage, let's say, from victor to victim in this case. Uh, the victor becomes victim. Um, however, in the song proper, that is in the ten stanzas uh, of the song, there is no reference to the to the Cinca or the Spaniards or any other indigenous um, uh, indigenous ally, for that matter. In fact, uh, we learn that the the affliction that has befallen Mexicayotl um, is is the doing of Ipalnemoani. Now, that's what we have in them. In the text, uh, and the, the term Ipalnemoani is a generic uh, de- deity epithet, uh, literally meaning um, he by um, uh, he by whom one lives hmm? um, or, or life giver. Let's say so. So this generic term um, is used in the song so that native notions of divinity could appear to be compatible with Christianity. Ipalnemoani in 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 it's actually a veiled reference to, to God Huitzilopochtli or Tezcatlipoca embodying um, the supreme deity in the eyes of the, of the Mexica. So in the song, uh, the Mexica accept limited responsibility for the events. Uh, they, they admit that they may have been lax or negligent um, and therefore they may have breached um, sacred rituals. Now, according to the to the Nawa belief system, um, such such negligence could actually bring about temporary periods of chaos, of disorder. Right. So, uh, but it's important to to, to keep that. Uh, although um, they acknowledge that they may have been negligent, um, this is a rather uh, this is a rather vague and limited acceptance of, of responsibility. Um, the Mexica do not admit sin or guilt, uh, say, in the Christian uh, moral sense of the term. Um, um, I think it's, it's Louis Burkhardt uh, who writes in, in her book, uh, The Slippery Earth, um, that uh, their age, the, the, the age of, of the fifth son, uh, was a time of relative chaos anyway. Hmm? So the Mexica knew that disorderly periods um, um, were, in a sense, uh, were in- inevitable. But, but there is no sense of Christian sin in the song. Um, I repeat this because, because it's quite important. So the Spanish narrative of the conquest as a victory of the Christian God over the pagans um, is surely absent um, in, in this case. Um, uh, instead, the cultural trauma is a result of divine sanctions, um, which in turn 
which is in turn seem to be the result of the Mexica bridging sacred uh, sacred rituals. So ultimately, uh, divinity occupies here the space of the of the perpetrator. Uh, now, um, contrary to Wechotzinkayot, the second song Tlaxcaltecayot. Uh, Attributes, uh, attributes responsibility to the indigenous allies of the Spaniards, particularly uh, to their traditional enemies, no? the, the Tlaxcalteca, hence Tlaxcaltecayote. So in this song, um, which is about three times longer than uh, the other one, Huesotzincayot, um, the Mexica imagine the, the Tlaxcalteca relishing their humiliation. That is, uh, the Mexica imagine them relishing um, the humiliation of the of the Mexica, um, which is a, which is an is- interesting concept. So, whereas in Mesochincayot the perpetrator is, um, as I've said, Ipalnemoane. Um, interestingly, uh, in Tlaxcaltecayot, responsibility lies with with Cortes's now allies, and not actually with with the Spaniards, hmm? uh, who are uh, the Spaniards are mentioned in the song, uh, but. Um, the emphasis is not on them. Um, and they almost, I think, they never appear in the refrains, for instance. Um, only uh, the Huesotinga and, and Tlaxcalteca um, uh, do, as far as I can remember now. So I argue that this, um, this has less to do with uh, Spanish censorship or the position of the composer in early colonial Mexico, and it has to do more with uh, the now worldview and also um, the indigenous view of the conquest as an act of defiance against uh, the, the Mexica Empire. In fact, um, in fact, the now elite did not generally embrace, uh, let's say, a conquest narrative. This is another important point um, um, to bear in mind. Uh, colonial Nahuas developed what uh, Jorge Clor de Alba has called uh, a counter-narrative of continuity. Uh, this counter-narrative of continuity helped them find their niche uh, in the new colonial order, um, and it also stood at the opposite end, uh, at the opposite side of, of the Spanish narrative of the conquest um, as rupture, that uh, is, um, as a break, as a, as, a, as a cultural and epistemic break uh, between uh, pagan uh, past and Christian present. So colonial Nahuas, including the Mishigalit, that is, um, asserted a historical continuum hmm, before and after the fall of Tenochtitlan. Um, and they could do so uh, thanks to, to the Nahua worldview um, uh, and more specifically thanks to uh, the, the rotational ordering scheme, uh, which essentially meant that uh, but one thing is, is replaced, is, is, is substituted by another. Um, Burkhardt actually argues that um, this rotational ordering scheme uh, allowed the now to, to conceptualize the conquest not as a watershed event, um, um, not as a break or rupture with the past, uh, but actually as a rotating shift. So what did this mean? It meant that uh, the events of the conquest, um, the, the shift, the transition to the Spanish rule uh, uh, and the epidemic diseases uh, that plagued colonial Mexico um, in the 16th century, um, the Coco Lisley, uh, were seen as part of this rotational order, uh, which in the past um, had brought about diseases, uh, natural disasters, wars, etc., uh, etc. Et no? so, so just to conclude, um, it is not surprising that laments like Anakalima are not so uh, frequent. Um, they're actually rare uh, in the surviving corpus from early colonial Mexico. Um, thanks to the, the counter-narrative of continuity in early colonial, colonial Mexico, um, there was a tendency to elide uh, rather than to lament over the transition to, to Spanish rule. Um, also, let's not forget... Uh, that many Nahuas, including the Tlaxcalteca and, and the Huesotzinca, uh, had played an, an active role and an important role uh, in the conquest um, uh, by siding with Cortés. Uh, therefore, songs like Huesotzincayot uh, and, and Tlaxcaltecayot are unique, really. Um, 
they are exceptions to the rule. Um, as I argue in the book, uh, the songs are seeds sown on, on barren ground, so to speak. Um, they were composed composed by by members of the of the now elite who went against dominant attitudes of the time and uh, who lamented the fall of, of the imperial city uh, as a major disruption. So I think it's very interesting that you that you show how collective trauma does and doesn't uh, last and, and, and be constructed in these two different societies in response to their conquest. Uh, and your book really wraps up nicely as you talk about the afterlifes of these different texts in a chapter uh, appropriately titled Texts in Their Afterlife. Could you tell us a little bit more about this fifth and final chapter where you discuss and explore how these historical moments of conquest have played out in national life since the 15th and 16th centuries in Mexico and Greece, respectively? Sure. Um, uh, Let me first say that all three texts address uh, the four critical uh, critical questions um, um, of the trauma claim. uh, of the trauma claim process um, regarding the nature of the pain, the identity of the victim, the identity of the perpetrator, um, and the relation between um, victim and audience. Um, also, all three texts uh, uh, are imbued with pessimism. Uh, Constantinople, uh, we are told in the poem, is is now a Turkopoli, uh, a city of Turks, um, and, and Tenochtitlan has been abandoned, uh, which is an idea... Um, repeated both in Ueshotzinkayot and Tlaxcaltecayot. Uh, in all of these cases, um, the, the cultural trauma um, is constructed by drawing both on available, uh, on recognizable traditions uh, or symbolic resources, uh, but also obviously on, on the historical events uh, recorded in, in, in contemporary sources. Um, as um, as I have said, so the three texts imaginatively reenact uh, the disruptive events of the conquests uh, with a view uh, to imparting hmm, their trauma claims to, to the broader community. Um, um, in both cases, uh, now in principle, all three accounts uh, could serve as uh, say as vehicles um, uh, for the transgenerational transmission of trauma. Um, although in reality, uh, different historical environments, different historical contexts um, led to, to different historical roots. Um, in, in the case of Greece, in post-independence Greece, um, well, by, by the way, this year uh, Greece um, uh, celebrates its uh, bicentennial of, uh, of the Greek War of Independence. Um, um, so in post-independence Greece, uh, learned laments like Anakalima and folk songs um, about the, the fall of Constantinople uh, found their place in school textbooks. Uh, and of course, as we know, schools are, uh, are among the most important um, institutional arenas. Uh, this, is, this is a term I borrow from, from Geoffrey Alexander. Um, so schools uh, have an institutional power uh, when it comes to disseminating, but also when it comes to um, sustaining uh, cultural trauma. So uh, Greek folk songs, uh, including songs about the fall of Constantinople, were transmitted orally uh, until until the 19th century, um, at least um, in, in rural areas. Um, and it was in the 19th century when they, they were collected and recorded. Their collection actually coincided with, with the processes of nation-building um, in Greece, um, as well as with Greek irredentism, um, uh, and was actually, actually often uh, guided uh, by them. Um, by Greek irredentism, um, I, I refer to the so-called megali, uh, megali idea, uh, or great idea, or grand vision, um, however you want to, to translate it. Um, um, the megali idea became the ideological core uh, of the Hellenic state, uh, more or less for a century. According to the Magali there, um, uh, there was, uh, in post-independence Greece, there was still a need to liberate uh, all those uh, Greek-speaking subjects who lived in areas um, outside uh, the borders of the, of the nascent uh, Greek state, um, mostly in the areas once belonging to the Byzantine Empire. So uh, folk laments, um, as well as uh, Thrini, uh, that is learned laments, uh, like Anakalima, 
uh, were already signs of an open wound hmm? and, and cultural trauma uh, that had shaped, that have that have formed uh, the identity of, of the Greeks uh, ever since the fall of Constantinople. Um, and um, uh, the Megalide came to an end uh, in 1922 uh, following the, the Greco-Turkish war, uh, or uh, as it is known in Greek, uh, the, the Asia Minor disaster, Mikrasiatiki um, Katastrophe. I've noted a few times uh, today how once cultural trauma is constructed, uh, it needs to be continuously nurtured and sustained through, through various, um, um, various um, uh, institutional channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trauma of the fall of Constantinople has become, um, uh, I would say, a kind of uh, an archetypal trauma, um, a kind of an ur trauma, uh, so to speak, um, one that stands for all the traumas of the Greeks, hmm? I- including the, the Turkish invasion of Cyprus in 1974. Now, the case of Mexico and that of Cantares Mexicanos are different. Uh, Apparently, the manuscript was forgotten um, until the second half of the 19th century, when it was uh, rediscovered in, in the National Library of Mexico. Um, so, uh, how did this happen? Well, uh, uh, the difficult language of Cantares Mexicanos as a whole um, must have been one reason uh, why the tradition of the Cantares uh, withered away um, towards the end of the 16th century. Um, by which time, of course, of, uh, the authors of, of, of the songs must have died. Um, colonial censorship may have been another reason. Um, but, but, but in the case of our two songs, Weshotzimkayotl uh, and Tlaxcaltecayotl, um, I, I also see another reason, um, which has to do with their trauma claim. Um, scholars like Neil Smelser argue that... Uh, one of the strategies against trauma uh, is to turn negative events into positive events. Um, um, similarly, Ron, Ron Ironman uh, speaks of traumatic events which uh, can actually be projected as um, the beginnings of a collectivity. So traumatic events can become part of founding narratives. Um, they can be given, uh, let's say, a positive spin. Now, um, did this happen with, with early colonial uh, Nawas? Well, no. We've seen that um, this was not the case, partly because of the of the counter-narrative of uh, continuity and the, and the Nawa notion of the rotational ordering scheme um, that did not favour the, the idea of watershed uh, events, as, 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 as we've seen, and partly because of the view that um, uh, the conquest was a massive uh, indigenous rebellion against, uh, against the Mexica. Um, we have to remember that Wishotzinkayotl and, and Tlaxcaltecayotl um, uh, were exceptions, hmm? no, not the rule. But here's another question now. Um, could the conquest be read, uh, be viewed um, as, as cultural trauma retrospectively? Um, say, could that happen in post-independence Mexico? Um, well, in theory, yes. Did this happen? No. Uh, why? Well, because of the narrative of Mestizaje, mm-hmm. uh, whose birth scholars uh, trace in the Porfiriato, mm-hmm. And more specifically, in the works of um, of such intellectuals as uh, as, as um, Justo Sierra, hmm, who was also Secretary of Public Education uh, between 1905 uh, and up to the end of the Porfiriato in 1911. Uh, in the post-revolution um, era, the narrative of mestizaje is cemented in in the writings of of influential figures um, like um, like Jose Vasconcelos, um, who was also uh, by the way, uh, Secretary of, of Public Education in, in the early 1920s. So, according to the narrative of Mestizaje, uh, modern Mexico was uh, quite literally thought to have um, emerged from the conquest. Um, uh, and Mestizaje was symbolically represented no, by the union of, of Cortés and, and Malintzin, no, the, the, the woman from Veracruz who, who was Cortés's uh, translator, strategist, and, and, and companion. Um, at the same time, Mestizaje was embodied um, quite literally um, by Malintzin's uh, and Cortés's son, Martis, Martin Cortés uh, 
uh, El Mestizo. So contrary to the modern Greek reading of the Ottoman conquest as a watershed event uh, and deep-rooted um, cultural trauma as a wound on the body politic, and in contrast uh, to the counter-narrative of continuity, um, of the of the early colonial Nahua elite, twentieth um, century Mexican nationalism put a positive spin uh, on the conquest of Tenochtitlan, Tlatelolco. The, the 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 fall of the empire, the fall of the uh, of the Mexica Empire, uh, was retrospectively projected now uh, by the urban elite um, as, as the birth of the mestizo nation. Um, so, understandably, uh, the conquest could not be read. Uh, in uh, in negative terms, it could not be interpreted um, in, in negative terms um, as a negative um, affect, as 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 a, as a pain, no, as an open wound and a deep seated cultural trauma. In other words, the conquest was seen as constitutive, not uh, disruptive, um, of being uh, of being uh, Mexican. So, on the other hand, in theory, um, career groups among the indigenous peoples in post-revolutionary Mexico could have retrospectively as well projected the fall of um, Tenochtitlan Tlatelolco as, as, as cultural trauma. Um, however, um, sadly, we know that such groups, uh, well, we know that such groups uh, would, would need access to institutional power, uh, they would need access to, to, to resources, they would need access to, uh, say, authority with which to disseminate uh, their trauma claim, um, but um, we know that indigenous peoples um, have been largely excluded uh, from from those areas. Um, well, in fact, millions of, of indigenous Mexicans uh, from from various ethnic groups live on the margins of society uh, and find themselves um, at the at the bottom of, of socioeconomic I- indicators. So. Um, Today, Huesotzincayotl and uh, Tlaxcaltecayotl mostly entertain a close, let's say, <laughs> a close circle of scholars, no? And, and, and we may find them on, on some university courses. Um, but contrary to Anacalima, um, the two songs are not standard inclusions um, in, in, in school manuals, uh, for instance. Um, for a long time, uh, the songs appeared in 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 in, uh, in, in a veiled form in Miguel uh, Leon Portilla's seminal book, uh, The Broken Spears. The the title in Spanish is Visión de los Vencidos, um, which was originally published um, uh, in fif- in nineteen fifty nine, I think, uh, and was later uh, included in uh, a suggested reading um, in the curriculum of, of Mexican and Latin American literature uh, of the National uh, Preparatory. High school. Now, in, in the Broken Spears, um, there is no mention of the original titles of the two songs. Um, folio numbers are absent, uh, and, and different parts of the songs are, are clumped uh, together, rather uh, in a rather arbitrary way, uh, um, and therefore, therefore uprooting uh, the songs uh, from their Cantares Mexicanos context. Um, well, Leon Portillo, of course, uh, along with his uh, mentor um, Garibay, um, Angel Maria Garibay, um, made a monumental contribution to, to Nahuatl literary studies. And, and of course, it is thanks to them that, that, that Nahuatl uh, uh, studies came to prominence in, in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, but, but, but the domesticating strategy uh, we see in, 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 in works like The, the Broken Spears uh, um, reflects the general erosion I would say, of indigenous difference um, vis-à-vis the dominant rhetoric of mestizaje. Um, None of the two songs appear in recent textbooks uh, that I have been able to consult, um, despite the fact that uh, since uh, 2011, uh, the the entire corpus, actually, of of Cantares Mexicanos um, has been available uh, in Spanish in in a translation by by Leon Portilla himself. Meanwhile, of course, Anagalima continues to, to enjoy a privileged um, position in contemporary textbooks um, in both Greece um, and, and Cyprus today. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a very interesting comparison. And like you said, this is the 200th anniversary of Greek independence, and this fall will hit the 500th anniversary of the fall of Tenochtitlan Tlatelolco. 
Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how these uh, memories and histories continue to evolve. Precisely. As, as, as in more anniversaries in the future. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time today and excellent answers about an excellent book, Eleni. Before we go, could you tell us what is next for you? What are you working on now or plan to work on in the future? <laughs> right. Um... Uh, okay, yeah. Um, uh, at this point, I'm, I'm actually working on, on two different projects, um, um, which, um, uh, well, I mean, the first one is, is an interdis- interdisciplinary study uh, of urban space in Argentina um, in the 1920s and 1930s uh, from the vantage point of, of the visual arts and literature, um, and more specifically, uh, painting, uh, photography. Uh, silent film, poetry, um, and the novel. Uh, the book is called Five in One Thesis on Modernity, Buenos Aires Across the Arts, 1921-1939, and will appear um, in the series uh, Illuminations, Cultural Formations uh, of the Americas of the, the University of Pittsburgh Press um, in 2022. I should probably mention uh, that this project was funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council uh, in the UK. Um, interestingly, I know that this will start, sound strange, but this um, this project is very much related to, to the Concord um, uh, because it was when I was writing the introduction to this um, decade-long project um, that I started researching on modernity's conceptual others, uh, the non-moderns, the pre-moderns, etc. Um, and, and I ended up um, uh, researching on, on, on Byzantium and, and pre-Columbian America. Um, and, and, and that research, which was, as I've said, uh, kind of a, a theoretical study of the, of the term modern uh, and, and the notion of modernity, um, well, uh, that introduction ended up um, uh, being a, a separate um, um, a book project, which is the second uh, um, uh, the second project I'm currently working on. Um, uh, so this second project, um, uh, which I'm hoping to complete uh, sometime sooner than later, um, in some way complements the Concord um, in the sense that um, it partly explores ideas expressed in, in seminal form, of course, um, in the chapter uh, Byzantium, America and the Modern. Um, so, so I'm working on, on a theoretical study of the notions of modern and modernity, as I've said. Uh, I'm particularly interested in, in modernity's fixation with the idea of, of infinite progress. Um, uh, and the book, among other things, as I've uh, suggested, implied, recontextualizes um, Byzantium and pre-contact America um, within the crisis of the present, um, especially the, the anthropogenic climate change um, that we now know uh, has uh, sadly become the most uh, important existential threat uh, that, that humanity is facing. So one of my arguments in this book is that um, in our fast-moving and, and ecologically challenged modernity, um, Byzantium and, and pre-contact America uh, and, and the rhetorical um, constructions um, uh, by the moderns um, matter more than ever uh, but I should probably stop here and not be a spoiler. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, um, Ethan, for, for reading the book um, and obviously for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have this this interview with you today. And it's been a pleasure for me and hopefully our listeners as well. I can't recommend this book enough. Uh, and, and thank you for your time, Eleni. Thank you. Thank you, Ethan.